Hello, I'm Tyler Waukee, and you're listening to Sailing Ramona. Follow along with us as we prepare our own sailboat for her journey back to Japan from the U.S. and interview other sailors who cross our path along the way. Today we head to Nihama Marina, located in the northern coast of Shikoku, the smallest of the four main islands of Japan. We meet up with Lowell Shepard, a self-described never-too-later and a novice sailor who has set the goal of sailing from Japan to Vancouver, Canada before his 70th birthday. He's no stranger to big challenges, such as his 3,000-kilometer bike ride up the length of Japan, detailed in his book, Chasing the Cherry Blossom. He has leveraged his skills from his nonprofit funding days and managed to raise over $100,000 to help him reach his goal, and most of that while his YouTube channel, Pacific Solo, was just getting off the ground at around 1,000 subscribers. Lowell also helps others reach their own goals through his program, The Never Too Late Academy. In this episode, Lowell explains how he ended up living in Japan for over 25 years and also shares some unique aspects of sailing in Japan, like docking and free fishing marinas, the sometimes challenging tidal currents in and around the Japanese waters, and his close call getting caught up in fishing nets miles offshore. Okay, let's get started. Tell us where we are. Well, we're on the island of Shikoku, and we're in a port called Nihama, Nihama Marina, which is, I understand, halfway from. We're in northern Shikoku. We're halfway from the most western point of Shikoku and the most eastern point. Right in the middle. Right in the middle. Yeah, in yeah. Ehime. So I want to talk about your story a little bit. Can you give us a brief history of yourself? In the sailing vein, let me say. Uh, I've I've loved sailing since I was an a y- early teenager and I only remembered all this later in life but I used to design sailboats when I was 12 13 14 years old really and it was mostly it wasn't on an engineering side it was more like the layout down below and then I started to sail dinghies in my early teens and then my friend and air traffic controller in Canada called Doug Hoffman bought a Yamaha 26 footer it was in False Creek, downtown Vancouver. And I used to go out sailing with him. And I said, can I take out by myself? And he said, sure. And I lived on it one summer. And really? and uh, and then uh, got into sailing lasers. And then we moved to England, began to sell lasers in the Med on summer holidays and spent one summer sailing the Greek islands out of Corfu with a on a chartered boat. And uh, But when I moved to Japan with my wife, I gave up the idea of ever owning a sailboat which was a dream and living on it and crossing an ocean because it seemed too expensive. The reason I'm in Japan is because my wife was born and raised here and she, uh, her father, her parents were missionaries and they, her father was one of the founding board members of Nagoya International School, Nagoya Kokusai Gaku. And important to note, she's not Japanese. She's not Japanese but she was born in Kyoto Yeah, and she grew up in this school and her dream was to raise her kids in the same school. Yeah. So when we were married in 1980, the deal was we were married in Canada. If she would go with me to England for a time, then someday I'd go with her to Japan. And at the time, I thought I was just being a kind of cool 80s male. <laughs> sure, and, yeah. And then she, uh, she called me up on it. And at that time, I was a minister. And I studied theology, etc., Realized I really wasn't cut out for parish work because at that point I, I was too impatient with people yeah. and their problems. And 
So to be a pastor at that point was a very unpleasant thing. But so that took me into the nonprofit world. <clears throat> and so I've been involved in charity work, uh, development work, sustainable development work, um, all of my adult life, and particularly with an organization called Hope International Development Agency, where we focused on providing clean water in poor communities with the aim of helping the neglected poor become self-reliant. And that really is a the most fulfilling thing in my life. Uh, and meanwhile, I also began to write books for a British publisher. So when, we, when it was my wife's turn and we moved to Japan in 1995, at that point, I was just doing postgraduate work and, and was writing books, and I could do that from anywhere. And, and, uh, but then Hope in Canada asked me to go back and work for them again. I said, no, I promised my wife I'd come to Japan. Let me see if I can raise some money for some projects here. That then started Hope in Japan, which grew and initially became my eventually became my full-time job. So there was no, this Hope organization was not in Japan and you brought it here. Yeah. Wow. And I brought together a group of newly found friends in Nagoya. One was the U.S., the principal officer there with the consulate who remains a friend to this day. Uh, a guy called Robert Roach who founded Shop Japan. Uh, the general manager of the Hilton in Nagoya at the time who's now vice president of the Hilton. Uh, an architect called Michael Wienick and others. Oh. And I just said, this is what hope is. Uh, and these six guys said, let's start it. Let's, this is good. Let's, let's do something for others. So then it just grew to be in the top 1% of NGOs in Japan. So wow. all of that, meanwhile, my sailing side is, is I've just given up on all that, except for sailing lasers at Yamanakako. Hmm. by Mount Fuji, which was my wife's holiday destination growing up. She spent every August there growing up. and uh, and But then it was, I think, now four or five years ago, I discovered the Tokyo Sail and Power Squadron, discovered that through them I could get my boat operator's license, which you'd need in Japan for a boat over two horsepower. And I'd already checked some other s schools, like two, three, four thousand dollars and there I could do it for five hundred dollars for materials only and take the exam in English. And, I did the same. And you did the same. And so I did that and then suddenly I began to get opportunities to crew on boats, on Japanese friends as well, got into a Japanese sailing community and then I realized, you know, this isn't as opaque and expensive as I thought. And then I thought, I could still buy a sailboat and live on it. And that's when, that's when the idea of Pacific Solo came. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, briefly what is Pacific Solo? What is the goal? So the dream has always been to buy a boat, live on her, and sail an ocean. That's, you know, call it a romantic dream or whatever, sentimental. That's always been the dream. But when I... I realized, hey, this is possible in Japan. I, I then, I was also at that time looking for another endurance challenge. I took up cycling when I moved to Japan, and with the support of my publisher in England, 
I rode my bicycle from Kyushu to Hokkaido following the cherry blossoms and wrote a book about it. And and they, the book is called? Chasing the Cherry Blossom. Yeah. And they sold the Japanese rights, and there's a Japanese version of a different name. I don't speak Japanese well, so I can never remember what it's called, but it's slightly different. And that bicycle, although I've done many bicycle trips since, cycle across Cambodia a few times, I've circumnavigated Honshu by bicycle oh. with my dog. That was staged over two or three years. Um, but nothing compared with that first 3,000 kilometer bike ride from Kyushu to Hokkaido in terms of its transformative effect upon me. Like it changed me. Yeah. I, for two years prior to that bike ride, I was planning it, I was falling asleep, fretting about it, dreaming about it. I didn't even know how to change a tire on a bicycle. So those were big things at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and I had my first flat tire as soon as I got off the ferry in Kagoshima uh, within 10 kilometers. And I thought, oh, I... Time not, to test out your skills. I test, <laughs> test out my skills. And, and uh, you know, from a theological point of view, there's a stream of theology called Calvinism, which basically means everything is predestined. Uh, things are planned by the deity to happen to you. Yeah. And so when that happened, I jokingly said, okay, I got that out of the way. Nice. <laughs> I, I succeeded. Smooth sailing the, from there. So... So I was looking for a challenge that was equally influential on my psyche and my soul. And so I was just thinking, and, and I'd done other challenges too along the way, like I did a 100K walk once hmm. on New Year's Day, and I just decided three days before, I'm gonna do a 100K walk on New Year's Day uh, to go to a particular temple and back again. So with this idea, it suddenly came to me, okay, I can do this. I, boats aren't as expensive as I thought. I can buy a boat. I'll live on it. Yeah, I'll, I'll sail to Vancouver from Tokyo by that, myself. That's simple. Before I'm 70. And you were how old at the time? At that time, I was 63. Okay, that's still... 63, so I gave, gave myself some, some margin. Yeah. And, but many dreams and goals, I don't know if you, it's the same for you, sometimes when you have a a goal, even though it's audacious, you can blurt it out right away because you know you will do it. And everybody around knows, yeah, I know Tyler, of course, Tyler's going to do that. He's done all this other stuff. He'll do it. But other dreams are so high stakes and so outlandish that they're, they're not robust immediately. They're fragile. And you yeah. have to. So I kept that to myself. I don't know whether it was days or weeks before I initially shared it with my wife and the immediate family, etc. But I kind of had to ask myself the question, really? Yeah. Is that, like, this is pretty scary. Reality check yourself yeah. a bit for a while. And, and why do you want to do it? What are your motives? Yeah. And so I had to go through a, an internal cerebral and spiritual journey, kind of. And, and that's where the notion of just being in the middle of the ocean, furthest from land in any direction, was really a compelling thing for me, the, the most frightening thing. And that's where the you know Nemo North came up, and then I'm thinking I'm an environmentalist, so uh, yeah, I want to witness the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and I want to leave a legacy for my grandson, hence the YouTube channel. Um, I need to pay for this somehow, so I, had to, I came up with a business plan and, and what I would do and when I would do it by, and then began to share it, and I didn't, 
and then things advanced more quickly than I thought because I had to find a successor for Hope which I thought wouldn't happen until 2020 that happened in 2019 I didn't plan on buying a boat until mid 2020 I bought a boat mid 2019 wow. and then pandemic meant I could because I was also going to start a new business so I, on my 64th birthday I two months before I issued invitations I had a party in Tokyo a party in Nagoya and they were ticketed birthday parties I mean because so we could meet at a restaurant or something and but I said at my 64th birthday party I have three announcements to make so a lot of my friends were speculating you know, is he coming out? What's, what's <laughs> is what's, he coming out? <laughs> what, what what are these big announcements? But the three announcements were: it was time for somebody else to lead Hope to the next level, mm -hmm. because my Japanese wasn't good enough, and it just, you know, the pioneer, the founder is not always the best one to keep leading. Secondly, I'm going to start uh, go back to speaking and writing, and start a consultancy called Navigate 22, which is focused on ethics and CSR and goal setting and you know mission driven um, uh, planning with a view of what the 22nd century will look like what what can we do now to ensure my grandson has a healthy planet to live in on yeah. and in I'll have to hear more about that yeah. another time I haven't heard much about that one and then the third one was and I'm gonna sail across the Pacific Ocean to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch by myself. <laughs> that had to be the most surprising of the three for everybody, I would assume. Yeah, and I realized then, because I come from the nonprofit sector and I'm not wealthy, uh, that I had to, I couldn't treat this as a hobby, I had to treat it as a business. Yeah. And some of my advisors, advisors helped me with that. And because I know sponsorship and fundraising, I was yeah. able to leverage that skill. You've leveraged her quite well. Yeah, you have your channel has just a few thousand subscribers now. I think, right? I've, I've just just passed the three thousand yeah. mark. Yeah, congratulations! And yet you've raised quite a lot of money for your journey. A hundred and five thousand cash sponsorship to cover capital costs. Yeah, purchase of the boat on a three thousand subscriber count uh, YouTube channel. That might be quite surprising for some people listening. Yeah, and I make on average about three dollars a week from Google ads. Yeah, but that, that helps by a, but that helps power the the sponsorship. Yeah, it does exactly. Yeah, yeah. and good. then along the way, um, and then I started patrons as well. Yeah, and I have a, a dozen faithful patrons, about four hundred U.S. a month. One of the lowest ones is lowest level is two dollars a month, and the guy who gives two dollars a month says, "I want to do more, but I can't." He's actually the guy who took over from me in Hope. Really? So I know he's not making a lot of money. Yeah. I said, Jeff, it's fine. No, no. He says, well, I my friend, I have a friend who's president of the History Channel in Japan. Do you mind if I tell him about you? Uh, and so I thought about that for half a second. I said, <laughs> go ahead. So, so now History then approached me yeah. to do, they want to do a documentary, 60-minute documentary of my crossing of the Pacific. But because it's not going to be for a while, they... They said, "Can they want to do a travel series with me as a rookie sailor, old man, uh, cute grandpa, as they characterize me?" Yeah, um, it's fitting. Visiting, visiting remote, obscure ports, and experiencing local. Yeah, experiences. Yeah, you showed us the pilot last night. Yeah. It looks looks quite well done, and I think it. Uh, 
It looks like it'll appeal. It's mainly for the Japanese audience. So that's no, that's for the. It's going to go across all Asia markets. Yeah. But the, but the first airing will be in Japan, Japan, Mar uh, July twenty fourth, eight p.m. and then across Asia in the autumn. And can you say the name of that if anyone wants? It's to It's called Dare to Dream. Dare to Dream. And it's the pilot, and here it has me arrive in Ikijima, one of the eight islands mentioned in Japanese mythology. Uh, really, it's a magical island. And uh, I arrived there the first time being towed by the Coast Guard because I had an accident at sea. And then I had to get towed to Fukuoka to get the boat repaired. And then I sailed back under my own steam. I headed the History Channel film crew two months ago. That's a great segue to dive into sailing in Japan. Okay. What are some challenges once you kind of started the process that in your head you thought, okay, this is Japan. So what specifically about Japan did you think would be a hurdle that ended up not being a hurdle and vice versa? What's something that, yeah. Well, it wasn't as, uh, it, it wasn't as difficult as I thought to get my boat operator's license, etc. Realize there is a sailing community here, both Japanese and foreign. And, and, and TSPS really was a door opener for me and began to make friends in the marine world. So those were obstacles that turned out not to be obstacles. But then a big obstacle was my ignorance in other areas. So I began shopping for a boat. I had it shortlisted, one in Phuket, one in the Philippines, one in Fukuoka, and one in Tokyo at Yuminoshima Marina, and, uh, which was this boat, a Wahine, a Gibsy 402, 40-footer. And I ended up buying this one, and when I bought this one, I just assumed I can sail off into the sunset. Yeah. And then I discovered there's all kinds of hurdles and obstacles, legal ones, uh, because if you have a Japanese registered boat, uh, it has to be certified by the JCI, and there's different levels of certification. JCI being Japanese certification? Yeah, I don't know what the precise... But basically, yeah, they're the ones that certify boats in Japan exactly. for different categories of how far offshore you'll sail, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And so this boat was Genkai certified certification which meant only five miles offshore and all of area one now area one is a pretty big area which covers tokyo one tokyo bay all the way up out to miyakejima so you've got this kind of point out to the pacific so the previous owner he was happy with that he was just either racing it or having parties on it he wasn't going to sail to nemo he wasn't going <laughs> to sail the sail to nemo so then i discovered when i was going to do my test run my stress test to Okinawa uh, that I wasn't allowed to go. Then to upgrade the certification, then it's a matter of what equipment you have on board. And that, of course, involves money. But it has to be equipment on the specified list, but with the Sakura stamp on it, the JCI. And basically, you double the cost. So this life raft here at my feet, yeah, uh, which is certified for Kinkai, which means offshore anywhere in the Pacific, basically. Um, in the States, would it cost me $4,000? Here, it cost me $7,500. Yeah, so it, it's you can't just use a, a U.S. life raft or you can't use a U.S. EPIRB, things right. like that. They all have to be Japanese certified items. Y yes, unless if you have a Japanese registered vessel. Yeah. Now, your boat... Yes. We took uh, a different approach. You can sail it in, and then you have some other compliances yeah. that you have to do in terms of customs and and though. But 
there's a I think a two-step process for you yeah but once you've got that you can basically sail anywhere a disadvantage for you would be with a foreign registered vessel you can't belong to bond which is boat assistance network uh, yeah it's like a an automobile association mm -hmm. and I benefit from them already yeah uh, it cost me I think 30,000 yen a year but uh, as long as you're within their zones and Seto Inland Sea is totally in their zone any problems they'll come and tow you to the nearest port yeah so uh, but so yeah so I've encountered those difficulties one of my YouTube episodes I focus on what are the different levels of certification, etc. Yeah. And then also you need a boat operator's license. Yeah. If you have a foreign registered boat, you don't need a boat operator's license. So for people who are want to travel into Japan on their own boat, uh, from my understanding, it was quite difficult and it still seems difficult to many people that uh, I think before you had to, pretty much every port you entered in Japan, you kind of had to re-go through customs or something like that. But now I think since 2017, that's changed a bit. Yeah, you get one piece of paper that allows you free entry yeah. to all those it, it it treats you as a temporary Japanese vessel yeah now yeah yeah Mulder another advisor of mine who sailed here f from Amsterdam via New Zealand yeah and uh, he he then sold his boat that he had built bought a Japanese vessel but then sailed it to Korea re-registered under a, a Holland flag and then sailed it back and he's now been here 25 years living on that boat yeah but yeah basically the the point is if it's a foreign registered boat it's you don't have so many hurdles that you're facing here in japan so as someone traveling into the country they wouldn't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff you've been dealing with with your boat but on the other hand since you live here full time it's you get benefits from it as well yeah how about more specifically not just the legality of it but how do you find sailing the actual act of sailing in japan you know with the you know, whether it's the traffic or the, the marinas and the, the... So a number of varied points. At first, I was just looking at at wind conditions and was it raining or not. Yeah. And then I realized, no, I've also got to be concerned with CAPE, which is the atmospheric conditions that um, whether the atmosphere is ripe for thunderstorms or not. So an experienced sailor told me to always watch that. Also told then realized, no, it's not wind, it's gusts always check what the gust predictions yeah. are because that's what will get you into trouble but then uh ocean currents tides in japan there's a very big ocean current it's the kushiro current the black current and and it changes yeah. all the time too it looks kind of like the jet stream when you see that sort so, of and it kind of snakes and sometimes it almost loops back on itself yeah and then there's the more micro tidal currents like not too far from here, we're, we're in between two straits. You live near one of them, Naruto, where the whirlpools are, which I've yet to experience. You've been through those straits. Yes, those can a be boat delivery. a bit herring, yeah. Uh, but I've just come through Imabari, yeah. and it's just all about timing. Uh, and I also came through Kanmon, where Honshu and, Shiko, uh, Honshu and Kyushu meet, and that's a 10-mile stretch. So you've got it, and it's it's most acute you can get up to 10 knots underneath the bridge and so you have to time that pretty carefully um, and has that been difficult for you or if you keep up on it it's it's no I mean, you you not speaking japanese is sort of another yeah. question i'm going to have as yeah. someone who maybe doesn't know the language but so and that's an that's another issue so i have lots of advisors yeah. who are bilingual 
and I have what I call the Pacific Solo Shore Team. There's probably 20 people on it, which includes family members, and uh, but includes uh, weather people, offshore sailors, diesel mechanics, uh, two guys with na uh, degrees in navigation, marine navigation, um, and so, and then also Captain Hero, who's one of I have three people who've helped me on the language thing. One is Captain Hero, which is always f my first point of reference to phone ahead to a fishing port. Mariners, I use my wife to call. Mm -hmm. uh, and she knows what to say. Uh, it's Japanese vessel, 40 feet, he's gonna stay long, this long, etc. For fishing ports, I can sail into a fishing port. I don't have to ask permission first. Without a courtesy, I usually get Hero to call ahead some of his friends in the fishing associations nice. just to get advice which wall I should uh, 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 moor against, etc. Um, yeah. And then, but the, just going back to the uh, other obstacles is you've also got garbage in the sea. Because I had an incident in January where I uh, disposed of fishing net, got entangled in my propeller, instantly stopped the engine, I was 17 miles into a 36-mile crossing from Nagasaki Goto Islands to Ikijima, and a storm was approaching. So I was motor sailing, and, uh, and that sent a, a shutter and micro-debris up the shaft, which then cracked the ceramic seal on the, on the dripless seal. Yeah. And, and I didn't know at the time how much water I was taking in. All I knew is I couldn't. I couldn't sail fast enough to get to port before storm. So Coast Guard came and rescued me. My brother makes the point of saying, look what happened to you there. Think of what, and you had somebody to rescue you. Yeah. If you're in the middle of the ocean. Where there's garbage. But yeah. also all the garbage in the middle of the ocean, where does it come from? It comes from coastlines. Yeah. From river run. You know, some is spillage off of ships, etc. cetera. Um, so that's, that's a big issue. and. It, it's unpleasant to see him. I did a, I was on a beach cleanup with a group of high school kids in Ikijima. Everything we were picking up was washed ashore. It wasn't by tourists leaving yeah. stuff. From the rivers and from. From the rivers, so, yeah. so that, that, so you have to be attentive. I'm solo most of my time, but like my wife was with me for four days recently as I came from Fukuoka around to Oita and completed a Kyushu circ circumnavigation. And it was helpful for me to have an extra set of eyes coming through Kanmon particularly. But, you know, when the thing is with that fishing net is when I got to shore and I had to r report this incident because it involved the Coast Guard. And then I had to dispose of this net because it's a fishing net, it's considered industrial waste. You had to dispose of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was in my possession. Wow. So, I, I mean, I could have kept it on board, but it was just a big piece of scrappy fishing net. Uh, and it cost me 3,000 yen yeah. to dispose of this. Um, and then I learned that fishermen, unscrupulous fishermen, in Japan and Korea, instead of paying that cost of getting rid of old gear, whether it's lines or nets, they just dispose at sea. Wow. And it, because they have to pay for it otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, and 3,000 yen, just to be clear on here, is about 
currently 25 US dollars. Or and something. that was just a piece of net the size of my cockpit. Yeah, if you right? had lots and lots of it. So, you know, they've got 100 times that size. Yeah. It's thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, hundreds of dollars at least. So it doesn't behoove them to do it properly. It's like, hey, I'm out here in the ocean. I can just dump it and no one will know the better. And it turns out that my particular net, when the Japanese fishermen looked at it, so that's Korean. Really? And they didn't say that in a racist or prejudicial way. Just a factual way. Yeah, but I think maybe there's a little bit of saying they were glad it wasn't the Japanese. Yeah. But I was told both Japanese and Korean, you know, unscrupulous ones will do that. Yeah. And then there's the other, you know, pet bottles. and, But now I, after that, my insurance covered all of those costs, and now I have a line cutter. Uh, on the actual prop shaft. Yeah. yeah. But but when I watched this particular line cutter on the prop shaft, and they tested that exact one against various materials, Yeah. and they start off, you know, with thin line, thick line, steel line, this, it, 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 it did it. It's a, it's a blade... Um, it's a disc rather than blades. And it was successful with everyone. And then it showed a net that looked almost <laughs> like mine. And the net just... <laughs> it didn't work. see stuff. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, I guess you'll still have to keep an eye out on that one. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to deter from, from that subject because it is quite important. But just to keep us moving along, um, I'm curious, as it relates to Japan, how do you find... Sailing the how do you find the people in Japan? How do you find the facilities where you you mentioned fishing ports and marinas? That's fishing ports is not something I think most cruisers ever encounter when they're cruising. It's almost always marinas or anchoring. Yeah. So yeah, that and uh, yeah, we'll go up with that for now. So uh, in my experience, and so far I think it's now fifty four ports I've been in since I left Tokyo fifteen months ago, and. Um, Number one is anchoring is not common in Japan. I've day anchored. I, I've you know gone to nice beaches and swam and stuff like that. But uh, in terms of overnight anchoring, it's not it's not the common practice. Um, fishing ports are free, and the fishing ports you have to you, there's usually no pontoons, no floating docks, so you're against the wall. So, but you can go fishing port to fishing port. And, and what's the challenge of being against the wall? Uh, tidal, yeah, and particularly in the Seto Inland Sea, at the western end of Seto Naikai, the variance can be three to four meters. At at your end, it's one to three meters. Yeah. So how do you work that when you anchor on a wall that takes? You can't that... leave your boat for an extended time. Number one, because you have to be adjusting. Yeah. If if the if it's relatively calm, you're safer. But if there's any wind or swell coming in then you've got to be concerned about banging the wall so constantly adjusting mooring lines then also these fender boards here i got one the, i use them as backboards here but these are fender boards because in uh, some fishing walls like these ones here are just completely flat but see over there the holes yeah okay so if you put your fenders out your fenders just get lost in the Sucked cavities into the holes yeah. so the common practice is most yachts that go cruising have what they call fender boards. There's one other item you mentioned last night that's quite vital on Japanese boats. It's a ladder. <laughs> and I've got a ladder there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I almost broke my hand when my wife was with me because we were at Aishima the night before we came through um, the, the Kanmon. And I had the, we were down three meters. And I had the ladder up just at the top. The top rung was just, and I put my hand between the top rung 
and the dock, and the the boat moved and, and it just the, the crushed. Ouch. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I was surprised I didn't break anything. So yeah, so every, you know, all the yachts will have a ladder and they'll have fender boards. Yeah. But the good news is it's free, and you just. You know, if you go in and you don't quite know where, and you start to go to a wall, you, you'll get fishermen start to yell at you. Yes. And point over there or something, and they'll let you know exactly where you should and shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. And then so so there's fishing ports. So anchoring, not so common. Yeah. Fishing ports, uh, zillion. I mean, there's over a thousand. I think that's one of the great things of cruising in Japan. Yeah. Like you said, free. Yeah. Then there's fish arenas. Which is usually fish arenas welcome pleasure boats and they're floating docks and they're usually quite cheap and they're usually run by the local fishing association. Yeah. I love fish arenas. Uh, then there's full fledged marinas Where are we like, now? like we are. Um, and then there's a classification that if a fishing port has a floating dock and some fish arenas and some marinas they may belong to an association called umi no eki which in english is sea stations yeah in japan they have a thing called michi no eki which is road stations which are basically roadside rest stops you eat food by local produce there etc and so sea stations are much the same thing where they welcome pleasure boats and you can experience fishing and there's restrooms etc the price for an umi no eki at the cheapest end it's free yeah the next cheapest end, it's just several yen. So Kaminoseki, this be most beautiful floating dock I've seen, actually, it costs me 25 yen a night. 25 yen, which is like 20 cents. That's a quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a couple of dimes. Yeah. And uh, then I came to, using the most recent example, came to Horie Sea Station near Matsu Matsuyama, and there was 1,500 yen a night. 15 bucks uh, 15 bucks and with a secure gate you don't need that in Japan but a little code you had to punch in uh, public 24 hour public toilets and for an extra 100 yen a day or 200 yen a day access to power or water yeah from my experience in Tokushima we just started at Uminaki with my local Japanese sailing club and I got to kind of see the back end of it of creating an Uminaki we actually brought a pontoon a huge pontoon we towed it across from uh, Awajishima into Tokushima and built, kind of built it there with the city, and they're only charging a thousand yen per night. Right. And I, I thought that's it's unbelievable because they'll never make their money back. But it seems to be kind of a Japanese way here, where they're not really trying to make money with these uminoekis. They're just trying to provide a place for people to come visit them uh, by boat, which yeah. I think is pretty great. It's kind of foreign concept in. America and and, and, and in many cases Umi no Eki is run by the city yeah. or the port authority um, and that's usually on the cheaper end but a for-profit enterprise like here yeah. can also be an Umi no Eki so you do get there's no standardization but even here you mentioned you were paying what 4,000 yen a night or something yeah and but with a maximum it caps out at at two weeks worth per month yeah so you're paying Two weeks at 4,000 yen, so about $40 a day for two weeks, and then you're staying another two weeks essentially free. for free. Yeah. So it's basically 20 bucks a night to stay in a proper marina, which I think is unheard yeah. of. And we stayed in, in Marina del Rey, I think they wanted 70 or $80 for one night. 
on our boat. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's amazing. I think that is a huge access- accessibility option for cruisers who want to be on a budget. They might think Japan, oh, it's an expensive country. But I think for sailing, it's actually quite cheap. And food in Japan is also quite cheap. Yeah, and if, particularly if you eat local and stuff. And then, you know, the other thing, I, I've ridden my bicycle the length of Japan, more than once, actually. And, you know, when you're riding the town on a bicycle, you, you're you noticed by a few people. Like, I, I recall being in convenience stores, and little children will cry because they've never seen a foreigner before. And... And you're, but then you ride out of town the next morning. With a boat, you're a bit more of a spectacle. A little more of an entrance. And the authorities also have interest in you. So I've been inspected by the Coast Guard nine times. A policeman sometimes rides by on his bicycle. Always very courteous and that. And and then one great story with Coast Guard is I was rounding the southwest tip of Shikoku, going to Tosa Shimizu a great har- fishing harbor, free of charge, stayed there a week. And uh, an all around a harbor, Coast Guard ship came out, saw me, came over, flagged me down, and they inspected me at sea. And we were bouncing around. They couldn't board because it was too rocky. And finally, they let me go. And uh, so when I get into port, I you know, it takes an hour to moor and get settled. And then I go looking for an izakai to have supper, a bar. Uh, and uh, find a little bar. There's two guys in it, six stools, two are occupied. I walk in, it was one of the officers from the Coast Guard ship. Wow. And he he stands up, he's inebriated by, he's been drinking as soon as he got off the ship, I guess. Yeah. And he's red-cheeked and he hugs me, short, squatty little guy. Then he runs home and brings me back a Coast Guard t-shirt. Wow. And says, next time we stop you, wear one of these. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. It shows the hospitality in Japan, even if they're you know doing their job out there and making sure you you might look a little more suspicious than the average Japanese sailor, especially with all your <coughs> signage all over the boat and 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 being a foreigner and all that. So I I assume yeah, foreign on a Japanese vessel. I, I a bit of a target. I a curiosity. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's not out of. Uh, and I've been told that the Coast Guard don't have a central database. Really. It's it's regional, so so that's why every time you get stuff. So some of the like gaijin sailor friends, oh, you're on their radar screen, yeah. but actually gaijin means foreigners. Yeah, you're yeah, other foreigner, fr- yeah. other expats. They say, oh, they're 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 tracking you, they're tracking you, but they're not tracking me. And, and sometimes they've inspected me because it's been an opportunity for them to train. Yeah, new recruits. Yeah, makes sense. So the last question would be, you you did touch on it already with your wife and kind of your shore team, but aside from them. How do you find sailing in Japan as a, as you say yourself, you don't speak Japanese very well. Um, so how do you find that more on a, you know, you can't call them every moment. So how do you find sailing in Japan well, and, and navigating? Well, I have a smattering of Japanese and I've, yeah. I've cycled the length of Japan and managed 90%. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I may phone Candy, my wife, or Hiro, if need be. <coughs> Pardon me. But, you know... You just polite, know a few basic Japanese words. Yeah. Sumimasen, uh, I'm fluent at body language. There you go. <laughs> and that takes you a long way. And you just have to be polite and deferential. Yeah. So for and, someone who had no Japanese coming in, you think it's still possible? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, learn a few key phrases. Yeah. And certainly do your research before you come. And 
my mate who you also know, Kirk Patterson, who's on my shore team, uh, he's the first foreigner to circumnavigate Japan. He sailed solo from Vancouver here via Hawaii. Opposite way. So on his, on his website, he has a blog called Kirk's Take, and he lists his favorite ports around. So it's, I think for anybody researching where to sail in Japan, they should start with two sources. Kirk's website, konpira-consulting.com. I'll, Kon put, that, I'll okay. put that in the podcast. Konpira yeah. is that famous. Near here. Word, yeah. yeah. Konpira is a temple in Kagawa on Shikoku, where we are now. Uh, I don't know the complete story, but basically it's a seafaring uh, where you get your kind of your blessing on your boat, right? Is my exactly. understanding. Yeah. And, uh, and then on in his blog, he... He's posting his favorite ports. The other one is there's an English version to the Umi no Eki website. Yeah. You can see all where those are as well. I'll put that on there. Well, there you have it. It's always inspiring to spend time with Lowell. Just the night before we recorded this podcast, we spent some time playing cards in the cockpit, and Lowell gave us some great advice for our own journey with our boat back in California. Be sure to check out Lowell's YouTube channel, Pacific Solo, and if you have a dream of your own that feels just out of reach, maybe the Never Too Late Academy is for you. We're pretty new to this podcast thing, so if there's any suggestions or comments, please feel free to contact us at sailingramona at gmail.com. Until next time, or as they say in Japan, matane. <laughs>